book of Daniel, chapter 7, verses 1 to 18. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being and the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was a second beast which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, Get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that, I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard, and on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the other beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being, and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place, And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair on his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority glory and sovereign power, all nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth, but the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess its power, yes, forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord.
seems to me that uh, in the trenches of uh, everyday life, or indeed seated before the evening news, it can be tempting to believe uh, with Shakespeare that life is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. I don't know what kind of uh, year you've had as you come to reflect perhaps on uh, 2014, but for many of us, for some of us at least, it may be a year that's been characterized by personal uh, struggles uh, and setbacks. Certainly as we look at the global stage, we will say again, it is a year that has been characterized by war and tragedy and terrorism. And it can be easy and tempting at those moments to think that history is nothing but an endless cycle of chaos, year after year, generation after generation. Now, the names change, but the, the situations remain fundamentally the same, an endless cycle of chaos. That is the temptation. The season of Advent speaks a different story. It reminds us, I think, that such a view of history would be short-sighted. It reminds us, in fact, that there is a greater story playing out in and through and over, not only our personal lives, but across the global stage, too. If only we had the eyes to see it. History is not in the grip of chaos. Rather, it is going somewhere glorious. That is the message of Advent. And it is going somewhere glorious because of the life and the death of one fragile man who absorbed the sound and the fury of this world, who experienced its struggles and its injustices. But one man who remained uniquely faithful to God in those struggles and thereby freed his people from their sin, thereby judged and defeated the forces of chaos and secured a better kingdom, a kingdom that is breaking in now and will be fully established when he returns. The gospel calls us to repent and follow this Christ. And if we are following Jesus, then we are part of that kingdom now. We are part of that story. And Advent is a time that calls us to realign ourselves, if you like, with that story. It's a story told by Daniel 7, to which we turn. And to make sense of Daniel 7, we need to understand, again, the context. Remember, of course, where Daniel is. Daniel has been defeated He has been taken prisoner from Israel, Jerusalem, and brought into uh, Babylon, the superpower of the day, mighty Babylon. And in Babylon, of course, he is surrounded by the pomp and the propaganda of the Babylonian Empire, surrounded by temples to the gods of Babylon, Marduk and Bel and all the rest. And they all proclaimed in their various ways, the magnificent buildings, the magnificent temples, they all proclaimed that Babylon and its gods ruled the world. And Daniel and the few faithful followers of Yahweh that have been taken to Babylon are striving, of course, to advance God's kingdom in their own personal lives, but also in the culture that they find themselves in against overwhelming odds, in a culture that is hostile. 
And into that personal, very personal, but also into that theological context, the God of the exiles invades Daniel's dream. Daniel 7 is, if you like, a God-given political cartoon. You'll know political cartoons if you read the national newspapers. Uh, Symbols are used to convey a particular understanding of the world. And if you're going to understand the symbols, you need to understand something of the worldview of the cartoonist and something about the situation of the culture. If you have those things, you understand the political cartoon. So it is here. We need to understand the backdrop of the Bible that gives you the key to unlock these symbols. And we'll come to that in a moment. We discover in the second half of the chapter that the four different beasts represent different rulers and their kingdoms. But I want to ask, what is it that the vision conveys? What is God wanting to convey to Daniel in this moment in his life and to us in our lives? Well, in a sense, in the first 18 verses, you get two views of history. You get a view from below and a view from above. Verses 1 to 8 is the view from below. And what it shows us is that human history will be characterized by a procession of kings and kingdoms, rulers and governments that will all be distinct, but will have significant similarities. And I've got time just to pick up on two. Here's the first. Do you notice where they come from? They all come from the sea. Did you notice that? Now, if you know the worldview of the Bible, then that symbolism is telling. The sea in the Bible is often used as a symbol of chaos, as a symbol of disorder. If you know uh, the Genesis narrative, you'll know that in Genesis 1, for instance, the great theme of Genesis 1 is a God who brings uh, order out of disorder, order out of chaos. And against that backdrop, the sea, the chaotic sea, becomes a symbol that is often used by uh, the biblical writers to picture that that opposes God's ordered rule and therefore brings disorder. So these kingdoms, these rulers, will arise not out of the desire to serve God and advance his ordered rule, but will arise to bring their own rule, which will be a rule of disorder. And therefore, secondly, notice they are beastly. Some more so, some less so. But they are all, to some extent, beastly. Again, powerful image if you know your Genesis narrative. Do you remember? Humans are created as the climax of creation, created to rule the world, including the animal kingdom, for God, under God. And that is what it is to be made in God's image. Remember, humans uniquely made in God's image. That is what it means, to be his rulers under him and for him. So, of course, when we subvert that rule, when we rule instead of him, when we bring our own rule rather than his rule, we become subhuman. We become less than human. And that's what the imagery here is trying to convey. All these kingdoms, in some way or other, will will bring self-rule rather than seek to channel God's rule and will therefore, to some greater or lesser extent, become beastly, like the beasts they're meant to rule over. Now, all of these beasts have a particular historical reference. The first one almost certainly refers to Nebuchadnezzar, and you can make the links if you go back and read the beginning of Daniel. You can see how it does so. They all have a particular historical reference, but the key for us sitting here in 2014 is this, that the Bible speaks today, and this is an eternal word. 
In other words, this is more than just a picture of four particular kings and their kingdoms. What Daniel gets here is a pattern, a pattern for all human history. God is saying to us this morning that human history will be a procession of human kings and kingdoms, of rulers and governments, all more or less beastly. That is to say, often they will be typified, like the animals here, by power and strength, by aggression, by the the, the language of speed in many of the animals seems to symbolize some sort of expansionist uh, notion, wanting to claim more power, more land. All in their own ways, some to more extent, some to a lesser extent, waving their fists at God and his people because they are all born from the sea. And how we see this, how we see this year after year, generation after generation, history does at times seem to be in the grip of chaos and bestial forces. We see the reigns of despots and dictators, of tyrannies and of terrorism. We see the rise of ideologies and idols that seek in their own ways to displace the God who created us. All in their own ways, God displaces some to more extent, some to a lesser extent. And what we see played out in the nations, it's easy to point the finger, isn't it? But what we see played out in the nations, we see played out in here too, do we not? We see played out in the human heart. Nations are as nations are because We are as we are. There is something of the sea in all of us, something of the beast in all of us. There can only be institutional racism, for instance, if people are racist. Nations are as nations are because people are as people are. But there's more to see. Verses 9 to 14. We've had the view from below, if you like, and now we get the view from above. And what we see, I think, essentially two things. We see something of God's present control, and we see something of God's coming kingdom. Something of God's present control and something of God's coming kingdom. Amidst the hurly-burly of the destructive and sometimes downright evil strivings of rulers and kingdoms, ideologies and idols, God convenes his court. Do you see that in verses 9 to 11? As I looked, verse 9, thrones were set in place in the ancient of days. God took his seat. And then verse 11, the court was seated and the books opened. There's a sense in this vision uh, that God wants to remind Daniel that he is ultimately in control. That the kingdoms of the world may act often in rebellion, but they are not free from his ultimate rule. They are constrained. They are, if you like, on a leash. It's interesting. We don't really have time to dig it out. But if you go back and read the imagery of the three beasts again, all three of them, you see, are uh, experience something of God's influence on them. The fourth one seems to entirely reject God's influence, and that is why uh, the fourth one is slain. They're all restrained. And indeed, as we look at uh, the history of the world, we see that, do we not? We see, indeed, that God is able to work in and through human kingdoms to achieve some good, in and through human ideologies to achieve some good. We all still have the image of God in us, though it be marred, it is still present. God is king, he is in control, and one of the proofs of that, I think, is that he brings the kingdoms of the world down time after time after time. What happened to Babylon and its gods? 
to the mighty Medo-Persians that replaced them, to the Greeks that replaced them, to the Romans that replaced them, and so on and so forth. It is they that have become the footnote in history, and not Daniel's faith. It is they who are covered in desert. It is they that are no more than a collection of artifacts picked over by archaeologists to be gawped at in museums. The vision proves to be true. His court is the one that lasts, and I think there is a warning here for us if we are tempted to build our lives on the schemes of this world. Daniel's vision is a reminder, isn't it, that uh, the world's scheme of things, as one writer put it, on which we so often build our everyday lives is not solid and it is not lasting. It is ephemeral and it is fragile. If we hope to build our dreams and our lives on the bricks and bites of this world, we are bound to be disappointed. And that is true. But another question came to my mind as I read this vision, and it is this. Who is it that rules my world? Who is it ultimately that rules my world? Is it the God of the Bible? Is it my creator who knows and loves and cares for me? Or is it other people, my peer group, my workmates? Is it the problems that I face as I wake up on a Monday morning Do they loom so large that in fact they have me and they rule me? Is it my fears? Is it my failures? Is it a sense of shame? Is it a sense of guilt? What is it that is ruling me as I wake on a Monday morning? Isn't it the case that when we are fearful and when we are anxious and when we follow those that we know we shouldn't follow, and when we do that which we know we shouldn't do, isn't it so often the case because something or someone has displaced the God of the universe and is ruling me, has become my, if you like, de facto king at that moment? You know, worry, our feelings, our behaviors, they always have an inner logic. We think what we think, we do what we do, we live how we live for a reason. And the Bible will tell us that so often that reason is because something or someone has become our king. And that is, if it's not the God of the universe, that is always going to bring disorder and be profoundly destructive. Who is it who rules our worlds? Who opinion matters most to us? Come back to the vision. Whose court lasts? Whose judgment matters because it lasts? Whose books, when they are open, do we want to be found in, as it were? One uh, writer put this, how freeing it is to submit to the rule of the creator of the universe who actually loves and cares about us rather than being ruled by our fears. Only then can we live at peace. I was struck uh, by this uh, quote, you may well know it. Victor Hugo once wrote this, have courage for the great sorrows of life and patience for the small ones. Go to sleep in peace. God is awake. Isn't that great? Isn't that Daniel 7? Go to sleep in peace. God is awake. Or as Daniel 7 might put it, God is on the throne. God rules. But he's doing more than restricting worldly kingdoms as I close. Do you notice he's replacing them? And that's 11 to 14. It's striking, isn't it? How will God defeat those powerful, aggressive, beastly kingdoms of our world? And indeed, how will he subdue the beastly nature that can be found not far under the surface in all of us? 
but he'll do it through the fragility of one faithful man. Verse 13, familiar words. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Do you see? Here then comes one, not arising from the sea, but born on the clouds of heaven. Again, Bible imagery, clouds often used to symbolize divine glory. So here is one who comes in divine glory, but in the appearance of what? Of a man. Here is one then with no beast in him. Here is a ruler that rules in no beastly way. Here is one who will come and will use the authority given to him by God for God entirely, submissive to God entirely. Therefore, here is one who will rule in a perfectly, fully, truly human way, will rule as man was meant and made to rule. And so the reins of government will be put into the hands of this man and he will build a kingdom and rule over it in which every kind of nation and people will worship him forever. Friends, Advent reminds us, does it not, that that is where history is heading. That is where history is heading. Advent reminds us that history is not an endless cycle of chaos. Rather, the powers of this world are restrained by the sovereign rule of God and they are being replaced by this one like a son of man. And we know, thousands of years after this vision, and thousands of years after the first Christmas day, that this son of man is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And this Advent, we celebrate the breaking in of God's kingdom at Christmas, when the son of man first came, not on the clouds of heaven, but into a cradle of hay with all the fragility of human flesh, and who in the wisdom of God defeated the bestial rulers and the natures of man through his fragility as they devoured him on the cross. It's on the cross as their nails tore his flesh that he experienced supremely our struggles and the injustices of the world. And at the same time, in the wisdom of God, bore the sins of his people. And in all this, he lived and he died in perfect submission to his father, the perfect human, the perfect image of God. And therefore, he was raised on the third day and exalted on the clouds of heaven that we celebrate on Ascension Day. And was led into the presence of his father and he was given all dominion. And now he offers forgiveness and he offers renewal in his image to all that would give him due honor, who would bow the knee and who would worship him. And we celebrate too this Advent, do we not, that it is this God who is on the throne, this God. One who shares the experience of being trampled on by the beasts. Not a distant God, but one who uniquely sympathizes with the weak, with the ostracized, with the vulnerable, with those who struggle, with those who face injustice. He uniquely sympathizes because he has lived that. 
shared our human experience of this world. It is this one on the throne. And finally, we celebrate this Advent, the one who promised to return to wrap up world history. Do you remember, on the eve of his death, in front of a corrupt authority, he was asked, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus replied, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. One writer said this, In the middle of a seemingly hopeless world, as the plot thickens and the absurdities mount, we know who's writing the final chapter. We know who's coming to bring his kingdom of peace and joy. The very same one who has been here to bear our struggles and the sins of his people. Then we will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with great power and glory. Amen.